We've been asked to separate our spiritual beliefs from our work or even public lives. For those on a spiritual journey, it becomes increasingly challenging as we seek a deeper meaning. Together, we'll have the tough conversations that help us uncover our truth. Hi, and welcome to the Modern Spirituality Podcast. My name is Stephanie Welter. I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Success Realty, and today I'm joined by Father Scott Donahue. He is the president of Mercy Home for Boys and Girls, as well as pastor of St. Robert Bellarmine Parish in Chicago. Thank you for coming today. Stephanie Welter, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so what everyone should know is that we're dear friends for many years, and yeah. I had the privilege of marrying <laughs> Steph and her husband Jim and baptizing the kids, and just, uh, it's going to be fun. It is. Because we're together. Yeah, I'm, I want to say how grateful I am that you came. This is my first video podcast hosting here. I've been a guest a couple of times on the show with Tony. Um, but to have you as my first guest, it's really important because we are such close friends, but I also feel like there's a lot of things that I don't know about you. And especially when it comes to your work, because we end up you know, just talking about our lives. And I want to kind of focus in a little bit on who you are as a person, where you came from. Um, so in that vein, I know you're very humble. You don't like to talk about yourself, but where did you grow up? What kind of childhood did you have? You know, what neighborhood? Yeah, obviously you don't know me because I love talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, truthfully. That. So I, I grew up in Mount Prospect. Mm -hmm. um, Mom and dad, two older sisters and a younger brother, family of four. Uh, it was like Mayberry in yeah. so many ways. The grade school is right down the street. Um, you were Barney Fife. Uh, yeah, probably so, yeah, the sheriff in town, or the assistant, but, but it, it was a, a good family life. Um, we, we went to church as a family, we had meals as a family, 60 kids in the neighborhood, seriously, on my wow. block. So there's all sorts of activity out in the neighborhood, playing softball and kick the can and colored witch and all that stuff. Um, as a student, I, I was always... Pretty good school. I, I liked school. Um, I liked sports. Um, what sports did you play? So I, I played baseball. I was a pitcher on the Little League team. And See, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And my <laughs> brother, too. So I was on the Tiger Majors, okay. and my brother was on the Tiger B team. But, uh, yeah, we, we played. So you were better than your brother? Well, he was younger. My brother was <laughs> always a better athlete. And we were a big swim family, truly. We grew up at the park pool uh -huh. so we my, all four of us we taught swim lessons in the morning I didn't know that. we'd spend all afternoon at the pool we'd swim swim team from five to six and be there at night it was like real cheap babysitting for my yeah. parents <laughs> true but, but i'm gonna yeah. take notes because yeah. i have two kids yeah. um okay you swim have two lessons. beautiful kids Thank two you. beautiful <laughs> children but yeah so it, my, my life was just suburban living in uh, where, where it really turned for me and for our family was when I was in seventh grade and my dad died suddenly. Uh, right. And it, it was, uh, as you can imagine, kind of a traumatic, not kind of, it was a traumatic experience. Yeah. And life just changed. How know? did he pass? He had an aneurysm okay. and he was at work. It burst, 
by the time they got him to the hospital, he died. I'm and so interestingly enough, he was supposed to take my brother and I to the baseball banquet that night because my team had won the championship and my brother's team. Mm -hmm. And so my mom, in her great wisdom, um, let us go to the game, to the banquet. She didn't say anything. Oh she God. had the neighbor take us. And when we came home, we found out. But that's when life changed and became kind of serious, as yeah. you can imagine. I'm so sorry. Oh. Um, so from that point, you're in seventh grade. Now you're without a father. Mm -hmm. um, before I, I move forward, you know, past that phase, yeah. I, I, I would like to hear a little bit about who your father was. So uh, my mom and dad, as you say, you hate to brag, my mother was a gorgeous woman, both spiritually. She had great joy. She had your energy. Great energy, very you. positive, you know, <laughs> um, and, and she, she was glamorous. I mean, she was a very, very pretty woman. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad went to Loyola University. My mom went to Mundelein College, okay. and they met in college. Um, they dated, and they got married. They first lived right up in, uh, on, uh, what would you say, Rogers Park area. Okay. And I was the third child, and in the apartment that they were living in, you could only have two children, so they used to hide me in the closet when the rent was due. That explains a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they bought a house in Mount Prospect. My dad worked for Firestone, and uh, yeah. What was the moment that you were drawn to priesthood? Was it a specific call from God, or was it more of a, a gradual inclination towards spirituality? It's a great question. That really is a great question. So, so it was not like an epiphany, you know, at all. I think I was always a pretty good guy, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I went to St. Viator High School. Uh -huh. uh, and part of the reason I went is my mother just wanted to make sure that I was in an environment that was um, both a good education and being able to um, have male mentors and female mentors in my life at a good high school and the brothers and the priests, you know? Mm -hmm. But throughout high school, I had a great high school year experience. Uh -huh. I loved high school. Uh, transition was a little tough my freshman year because I went from public grade school to Catholic high school. Sure. But it, I loved it. I, I, I truly loved it. I was really influenced by the Viatorian priests and the brothers and their commitment to education Mm -hmm. But also their commitment in terms of lifestyle, taking care of people, being inquisitive, compassionate, good listeners, you know, and that stuck with me. Um, I went on to Loyola University. I had thought about priesthood, but I thought about becoming a professional baseball player, too. You know right. what I mean? Uh, went to Loyola, lived in a fraternity house, great years, with every intention of going to law school. Really? Uh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. And, and so I had taken the LSATs, and, uh, but there was this, they call it the hound of heaven, as it were, this nagging inside, saying, have you thought about ministry? Have you thought about priesthood? And, and, and so truly, it was very the pragmatic. The hound of heaven? The hound of heaven. It's I've a famous poem. That. Yeah, yeah. It's how God chases people, you know, to get your attention, yeah. you know? And I often look at that. And so I went a fifth year to college, and I took some more theology and some philosophy, 
And I made a commitment that I'd at least go to the major seminary and talk with someone. I had no idea what the process was like, you know? So fifth year in college, at this point, had you declared a major at all? Yeah, I, I, I could have graduated after four years. Yeah. And I deferred the idea of going to law school for a year. Okay. Because I, I couldn't internally make the commitment there because I, there was unresolved issue about... Mm -hmm. Did you look at priesthood? Did you look at ministry? Did you, Interesting. Yeah, I probably lacked the words at times. So going to Mundelein, I, the rector of the seminary, Tom Murphy, great guy, ended up being the Archbishop of Seattle. He was a skier. I was a skier, racquetball player. So we really connected. Mm -hmm. How old were you at this time? So I would have been 23. Okay. And, and um, so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'll apply to the seminary, see if I get accepted. Mm -hmm. And if I do, I'll give it a year's try. And then I'll know. And, and then I will never look back and be sorry. You know? Yeah. I loved it. And my second year, I loved it. But it was moving so fast. After my second year, I left the seminary. I moved to South Carolina. I worked in a little parish uh, because I had no experience of church work, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it was that kind of love affair with the parish mm -hmm. down in South Carolina that, and the people, it's not the parish, it's the people, obviously, that gave me the internal fortitude to say, I'm going to pursue this. And I went back and got ordained and been ordained. It'll be 40 years in May. Yeah. I, I'm so excited to celebrate that <laughs> anniversary with you. We'll have years. a couple of those cocktails. <laughs> we will. We have to. Champagne all around. Um, but you did say something in there that caught my attention, mm -hmm. that it was the people in the parish in South Carolina. And I noticed that trend with a lot of people that are passionate about their craft or their, their you know, whatever their profession may be. It's not the profession so much as it is the people. Yeah. And so you found that when you decided to actually make the jump, it wasn't, you know, reading the Bible or studying theology. It was actually working with people that you liked. Yeah. I, I think the great gift in life is journeying with people in life, you know, and in a parish community, people who are committed to doing the work of the gospel and are fun, you yeah. know. And, and you work with folks from all different, from little children to adolescents, being involved in some of the most important parts of people's lives. And then with the elderly, seniors, I, I just fell in love with that way of living my life. Yeah. So you felt like a good person and like your cognitive dissonance was gone. So your, your actions are now aligned with your behavior and you're feeling like this is your path. Yeah. It's interesting. You, you use a great word. So cognitive dissonance or in the opposite of that is really integrity, right? right? When things line up, you know, what you think, what you do, how you behave, how you approach people, when that all is aligned, then you're a person of integrity and isn't that what we try to be in life. <sighs> best feeling ever. Yeah. 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 So I've read your book, Years of Mercy. Um, I do encourage the listeners to get the book. It's fascinating. Um, so the next step in your journey, it seems, so you become an ordained priest. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, you get this call from Cardinal Bernadine to be the director of seminarians. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you <laughs> at such a you know, short tenor as a priest? What, what made you the, the choice? Yeah, there's a great question. <laughs> uh, we just celebrated 25 years since the Cardinal was called home to God. And um, 
So I was in a parish first on the south side, and uh, he had come to celebrate one of the masses, and that's when I really got to know him. They were looking for a new director of seminarians. Um, I had been ordained two years, and he asked if I'd come to the office and talk to him. And I thought, oh, God, I don't want to do this at all, you mm -hmm. know, and only two years, you know. It was two years? Two years after I was ordained, yeah. So wow. I, I went and I met with him, and... He asked me, he was such a gracious, wonderful man and a great mentor. I do want to talk mentor. more about him a little bit, but I've continue. Yeah, no, no, no. And so he asked me, and he was he's a Southern gentleman. And so he, he asked me if I would take on this responsibility. And I, I looked at him. I said, no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure there's you, but it's true. And he was kind of, he said, how come? And I said, well, Cardinal, I've been ordained two years. You know, how can I be director of seminarians? At that time, we had four seminaries. Yeah. Two high schools, the college, and the allegate. What, it, what exactly is the job description, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, sure. It, it, it was working with high school, college, and post-college graduates uh, in their journey towards priesthood, you okay. know? Um, and it involved retreats and, you know, uh, talks and confidential conversations and just uh so he, he he was he was great he said scott he said i'll accept your no but a year from now i'm going to call you back and i expect a different answer wow. and he did did you know him prior to this or did he find you from your i i might have had a bit of a reputation in the diocese i, I mean uh what kind of reputation? What, I would like to think God <laughs> as a role model for young priests or for priesthood. That's yeah. not what I heard. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so I said yes the second time, but I put a condition to it. Um, and I, I love parish ministry. I still love parish ministry. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm at St. Robert's yeah. today while running Mercy Home for Boys and Girls. And I, I said to the Cardinal, how can I be an example of parish priesthood? That's what we're ordained to be, parish priests. And I'm living at the seminary. I don't, I love the seminary, but I don't want to go back. So he said, fine. He said, you can stay at St. Barnabas. I finished my five-year term there. And then I went to St. Juliana's up on the northwest oh, side. I know a lot of people from that parish. Yeah. Lived there 10 years and director of seminarians. And that's when I got involved at Mercy Home on the board. Oh, okay. Yeah. So how, how did that connection get made between you and Mercy Home? So I had heard about Mercy Home, and my predecessor was putting together a board. We, we really weren't well, well known in the Chicagoland area at the time, and there was a, a reason for that. And, and so he asked me if I'd be a part of this new board of regents in uh, being a parish priest, working with the seminarians, and having this new opportunity to be involved with the lives of these kids that come from some pretty difficult life experiences and to be a part of that, um, I love the invitation. And yeah. I've been with the home now over 30 years. Yeah. yeah, so give us a little synopsis for people that don't know already. What is Mercy Home for Boys and Girls? What is um, you know, your mission statement, how do you, you know, fulfill that mission? Are there different programs? I know originally it was, you know, Mercy Home for Boys. Yep. Um, give us, you know, an elevator speech, if you will. So the home was founded 135 years ago. 
It was founded by two Irish priests from the East Coast. They came to the city of Chicago when um, the uh, stockyards were a big deal, the butchering. And what was happening is these kids, mostly boys, mm -hmm. um, they'd be jumping on trains, coming to the city, thinking that they'd find their fame and their fortune, and they found themselves out on the street being taken advantage of. Yeah. And so these priests recognized that. They went to the local bishop, the Bishop of Chicago, and said, there's a problem. And he said, I'm aware of it. He said, I can't afford to build another orphanage. They had five orphanages at the time. And they Are any of those orphanages still here? Uh, no, not, not, they, they really are not. Now, Maryville is still around, mm -hmm. but that would be the closest to one of the institutions that's been around as long as we have. Wow. But uh, he said, if you can raise the money, you can start the home. And so they, they wrote their friends back on the East Coast. That's how we got into direct mail. Mm -hmm. But wrote their friends and said, look, the diocese isn't going to give us any money. Will you help support this mission of helping hurting kids? And that's how we got into direct mail. And that was the genesis, the beginning of Mercy Home. Wow. Yeah. And Mercy Home is 100%, almost 100% funded by individual contributions. You're not backed by the government at all. What does that mean for your constituents and for the programs that you run? It's a great question and it's one of those proud questions, you know, that you ask Steph. So the reason we don't take government money is because when government gets involved with programming, they, they really call the shots. Yep. Mercy Home is a home. Yep. And so when we bring young people in the home, and the government says you have three months or six months or a year to fix a kid, that's ridiculous. Yep. And, and so once someone comes to Mercy Home, say they come in seventh grade, they can stay with us all the way through their college years and beyond because we're family. And we mm -hmm. treat everyone with that dignity and respect of being a family member. So it's a great concept and it's yeah. something that you know, obviously I endorse. Yeah, I think um, from having known you and knowing Mercy Home, I did, I did work at Mercy Home for a brief, you know, amount of time. Yeah. I was very fortunate. It's one of the top ten places to work in the nation, I believe. Mm -hmm. Or is it the city or the nation? So for the past ten years, you're really good. <laughs> <laughs> but just this year, ten years in a row, we've been named one of the top ten workplaces in the Chicagoland area. It's incredible. Uh, by the Chicago Tribune. So ten years it's in a row. True. Maybe I've been there. Yeah. It's it's fantastic and. Um, Sorry to cut you off. Mm -mm. I told you this was about you, and now I'm talking. But um, I, I just wanted to, to touch on you know the, the juxtaposition of what you said. So Mercy Home is a, a refuge. It's a place. It's a home. It's not a government-mandated program. It's a, it's a house for these people that... And, and what I'm coming around to is a, a concept from the book, again. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the word opportunity deserts mm -hmm. and you talk about children that are growing up in areas where literally there's no opportunity there there was a, a child mentioned that he's in grade school and he's being threatened by gang violence and I think you know he was attacked on his way home from school and they kicked his face in and you know you expect these children to grow up into you know functioning Adults, that's, it's not feasible without intervention. And one of the main things that I got from reading the book was that not only are you 
you rescuing them? Not only are you giving them a home, not only are you helping them become functioning adults, but you mentioned more than once contributing adults. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. So, so you gave great context there, Steph, because you think of the environment out of which these children come from, from all over the city and really beyond. Most of them come from impoverished neighborhoods. Most of the young people who come to us are two, three years behind in education. Most of the young people who come to us have experienced neglect or abuse. Most of the young people who come to us, over 90%, there is no male role model figure. You said like 90%, no father yeah. figure. Yeah. So, so you look at the challenges that these young people have had and, and the trauma that they've experienced. And so they, they come to the home and, you know, think, what am I doing here? It's you like know? two different worlds, yeah. polar opposite ends of the spectrum. How do you, how do you get them from where they come from to where they are at? How do they, you know, the transitional period? It, it, absolutely. You're, you're right on target because that's exactly. So the, they come in through the doors. They, they live. I mean, we take really good care of our young people in terms mm -hmm. of food and clothing and recreational opportunities and great education and tutoring and uh, preparing them for the work world. I mean, that's all in there. But the, it's not a trick. It's God's grace. It's God's grace, and it's a wonderful co-workers. So I just want to say this because I get a lot of attention as being the president of the home. It's my co-workers. I mean, they really are. I don't want to use too much religious language, but they're the angels. They're God's messengers to these kids. So they're working with these kids. I can't imagine. I truly can't. Yeah. I yeah. can't imagine doing that job. Yeah, it's, it's a hard job, but what these kids need is consistency, they need to uh, know the potential that they have and the turning point stuff, truly. And I can see it in the kids' eyes, in their posture, certainly in terms of how they respond verbally, is once they understand that the only reason they're at Mercy Home, or the only reason we're at Mercy Home, is for them, and if they can trust. These kids' trust has been violated. And all of you who are listening to this podcast know once trust is violated, it's extraordinarily difficult to regain. Yeah. But if these kids can trust us, that we're there for them, that's when the miracles happen at Mercy Home. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, when you're, when you're onboarding your staff, the angels, the people that are working, you know, with these, the youth that have been traumatized, they've lost trust and, you know, they're going through all of these horrible traumatic incidents. Do you find that there's a little bit of, a conflict of you know the staff being privileged or coming from a different upbringing. Do you hire people that have come out of a tough situation? Is that something that you put into consideration in your hiring process? Because to me, I, I fully admit I've got privilege and mm -hmm. I, I can't even begin to talk about what these people have gone through, but I want to give back. Yeah. And I always face that you know uncomfortable feeling of like, who am I? You know, you don't. You feel like you don't deserve to even be there. How do you address that when you're hiring? It's it's a great question. So so um, we look for the, the 
the talents in the person. Who's, who, we call them coworkers. I, I don't like the word staff or employees. I just think mm. it doesn't work. Okay. They're coworkers. We work together, you know? I love it. And, 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 and so all things being equal, um, certainly they have to have educational background to sure. be able to work with their young people and understanding, you know? And we have a extensive training program for our coworkers who come to the home, and you're aware of that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think... Your, your questions are so insightful. I, I, I think there's a leveling of the playing field, as it were, that, that we come to each other as, as human beings, and we all have gifts to offer. We were talking about this earlier. You know, one of the great lines of Mercy Home, great teachings, you know, again, these kids come from pretty tough life experiences, you know, and so they act out, and they're acting on some of the trauma in their lives, you know. And to teach all of our coworkers, whether you work in the kitchen or whether you're a custodian or whether you're a youth care worker or in administration, we put them all through the same training. It, so often it's like, why did you do that? What's wrong with you? You know, yeah. I mean, that's what they've been used to all these kids. Our approach is very different. What happened to you? Tell me your story. You know, it's, it might sound a little... But it works, you know, yeah. to kind of de-escalate. What happened to you, you know? And then you get the life story, you know? And then you can begin to address the trauma. And you do it with love and with fun. Yeah. Yeah. So when you ask someone for their story, you know, there's a passage. Again, I'm going to keep referring to the book because I do yeah. think it's a really good guide to not only Mercy Home but to you. Um, you talk about the need to be seen as a person and to make your mark on this world. Um, there was one story in particular about two young boys that lost their mother. Um, it broke my heart. Um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit because you know yeah. you talk about not having your story told or not feeling like you made a mark. That, that one really struck me. You know, I, 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 uh, I know the story well. It's, it's when I first came to Mercy Home and it was two young men, a uh, 12-year-old young man and a 15-year-old man, and they lived with their mom. Dad was out of the picture. Their mom worked in the hospital. She had terrible kidney disease, you know? She loved her kids. So a lot of the kids come from environments where they really did no love. Yeah. And then she dies. Yeah. And there was no one to care for these two young men. So they, they come to the home, and they weren't at the home long. And again, you can imagine all the grief and the transition. I can't and, imagine. No. Honestly, I can't. Yeah. So but they wanted to meet with me. Uh, so they came in, and again, you're trying to address all that, you know. And then, so, so why do you want to see me? And they were pretty clear. They had like three requests. I said, okay, what can we do, you know? They described their mother's funeral. In this, this, hmm. When they were at the cemetery, they just went to the cemetery. It was a pauper's field kind of thing, you know? Mm. And they both described how embarrassed they were that their mother was being laid to rest in this. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I said, so they said, Father, a couple things. Um, will you go out and bless the grave? I mean, yeah. You always say yes, right? Mm -hmm. Easy. They said, is there any way we could get some sodden flowers out there? 
Well, sure, sure. I mean, but this was their idea. And, and they didn't want to push it, but they said, and how about a gravestone? I said, absolutely. Yeah. So it was three simple requests. I remember preaching in the parish the next day to our grade school kids, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm up on the northwest side with a different group of young people. Completely you know, different teacher, world. Where you grew up. Yeah. yeah. And the teachers in Catholic school, Catholic education, they heard a need, they responded to it. They took up a collection. So I went out to the cemetery with the boys. We certainly prayed and blessed the grave. Sod had already been laid with some flowers and we had ordered uh, a headstone for their mom. But that's, it ha so much good happens in that kind. They can trust Mercy Home. Yeah. They had a request. Nothing they did in their life brought them to Mercy Home. Right. It was life circumstances. They lost their mom. Right. And they came to us. And I still stay in contact with those boys today. Really? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're both in their 30s. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. That is great. And yep. I think, you know, you could take it even a step further when you're talking about, you know, the need to be seen or your story to be heard, to make a mark on this world. You know, to me, and this is my personal belief, you know, I think that's the meaning of life, you know, is to, to have an impact. And, and it's not like a, a publicity thing, like, oh, I, I want to be remembered and famous. Right. It's, it's more like my life mattered you know, and it counted for something I helped in some way. And do, do you find, you know, and this is a, a no. huge bombshell of a question, but like to you, what do you consider to be the meaning of life? Why are we here? That's a great <laughs> question. No, <laughs> but I, I can answer that. Um, and I, I answer it because that question, which is a life question for all of us, in some ways was answered in a book that I read um, by Robert Fulgram, wrote the book. And um, he, he wrote that book, Everything I Wanted to Learn, I Learned in Kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And he tells yeah, little okay. stories, yeah. much like this little book of 10 stories, you know. But he, he talks about going to a conference and there was a man by the name of Alexander Papadaris. And Papadaris was giving a talk on peace and justice and the meaning of life. And, uh, but people really committed to making a difference in the world, you know, mm -hmm. taking the gifts. We talked about this earlier, the gifts God gave to you mm -hmm. and sharing them with others, yeah. their gift. So at the end of the conference, Fulgrim stands up and, and he says to Papadaris, can you tell me what the meaning of life is? And everyone kind of laughed, you know, I didn't laugh at you because there is much meaning in life, you yeah. know. And he, he tells the story as a little boy. And he was in the island of Crete. And he, he's walking out into a farm area where the Nazis had been and the war was over and finds this motorcycle blown in pieces in the rearview mirror, there's a little piece of glass. And he, he takes that little piece of mirrored glass and he holds it up to the sun. And he realizes he can capture the sunlight and he can take the sunlight and he can direct it to dark places. So that's the metaphor, bringing light to darkness. Wow. Bringing light into darkness. And I think that's the journey for all of us as, as believers, you know. And bringing the light of Christ. It's a really beautiful story. To others. And so I've tried to mirror my way of living life by bringing the light of Christ, by bringing peace, all the hope and healing and light and that, that's 
compassion. Yeah. Journey with those who suffer in life. Yeah. So for someone, you know, that's not necessarily in a position, you know, not working at a mercy home for boys and girls, just your average Joe that wants to give back, you know, I, I, and this, I'm, you know, speaking for a friend, I'm, mm. this is something I struggle with. Mm-hmm. Seriously. I'm trying to implement, and I'm a strategic planner. That's one of my biggest. Oh, you are. <laughs> um, I've got it now in my thing where I'm doing a quarterly, you know, I'm going to give back. I'm going to do something charitable, whether it be Habitat for Humanity mm-hmm. or my husband and I just signed up to do a food drive. Um, we're looking for things to do that are meaning, meaningful and tangible. How do you recommend like the best bang for your buck, so to speak, on giving back? How do you shine that light without, you know, writing a check and, you know, where do you give it? It, It's so confusing, I think, for a lot of us that we just shut down and do nothing and we just continue our lives as is. Yeah. So uh, as I know you and your husband very well. Yeah. And I think the most important thing is you and your husband to love each other. As you said, a wonderful example for your two boys. I mean, that's how the world's going to change. It starts with us and setting example. We become what we behold in life. So those little boys of yours, they will become what they behold in you and Jim. And the world is made better because of that. And, and, and then you recognize your gifts, and you have so many, you know, but you recognize the gifts that you have. And what are those gifts that you're able to share with others. So, food drive, terrific. Volunteering, tutoring at Mercy Home. Our kids need really strong, good role models. So if anyone's interested in tutoring, contact Mercy Home or go to our website. Yeah. I've been trying to get our website in there. Yeah, <laughs> Mercyhome.org, mercyhome.org. You can find out about all the myriad of things that we do for nearly 1,300 kids and families in our care right wow. now. And if there's an interest that you find, and it's not always writing a check for sure, be a good role model. Be a good mentor. We need great mentors for our young people. Come and tutor one time, day a week, you know? Yeah. So there's a lot of ways of giving back. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's helpful. And I, I like that you said, you know, just loving and being a good role model for your children and you kind of see it ripple out. Um, I also, you know, I, I know that we, we touched upon the website and everything. There was one more story from the book. Yeah. And I, I don't yeah. want to bring this to a dark place but I think it's important to talk about because if we don't we're just going to gloss over and keep it all you know happy you know we're helping others no there's horrible things that are happening to these children you know they're they're facing gang violence they're trying to get an education they're being abused by their own family members um tell me what happened to Vanessa and where she is today I'm glad you brought up that story um that one really hurt to read. That was difficult. Yeah. So, and again, I think it'll be eye-opening for those who are watching this podcast, truly. So here's a, a young woman who grew up on the northwest side of the city, not that, you know, which is a decent place to live in the city, you know. She was being raised by her mother and by her father. Her father uh, got in a cab with... Vanessa, they were going back home, and 
the father, I know it's hard to believe, tried to sell her to the cab driver. His daughter. It's sickening. It's sickening. And even you, a priest, writing a book, yeah. you said, I, I have a hard time calling I, him a man. That you remembered, yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I, I yeah. truly, when I read, yeah. how could you do that? As a mother, I can't imagine. So Vanessa comes home, tells her mother, the mother and the father separate, thank God. Not long after, the mother brings another guy to the home, and they're living together for about two years, and Vanessa's life is in turmoil, you know. And then the mother gets tired of the boyfriend and said, get out of here and take my daughter. And he did. She was locked in an apartment on the northwest side of the city, sexually abused, beaten, tried to drown her a couple times, you know, choking her in the mirror. I mean, it's all pretty graphic in the book, it but is. it's true. And finally, she escapes through a window Interesting story. She put on a lot of weight when she was in captivity, mm -hmm. and it was the only way she could control him, by throwing her weight around, you know? Okay. But eventually goes through the window, so eating disorder comes out of all of that, as you can Interesting. imagine. Interesting. That's trauma. not in the book. Yeah. All this. So she comes to Mercy Home, you know, everything. You know, the posture, a couple years behind. But she was brilliant, and she was resilient. Resiliency is so important in young people. Um, and so she went on, she got a great education at Mother Macaulay High School. Oh, that's a great school. Great volleyball team. Great volleyball team. <laughs> I remember them just whooping our butts on the court. Jeez. Went on to university. So once you're in the family, they're in the family. Yeah. Excelled in college. We helped her through the University of Chicago, getting a master's degree, an MBA. Wow. And then... She's living in New York now, and she works for Bloomberg as an analyst. Wow. I mean, she's had a wow, fantastic. Wow, wow. So my, my story, though, in the book, and it's one of my favorites of uh, the young people. So I, I get a phone call from her, and, you know, we're kidding around and stuff. And she said, Father, I got a question to ask you. And I kind of knew the question. I said, well, I said, you want me to marry you? Because I knew she was dating this guy. She said, I do not. Well, I was crushed. Yeah. I said, what do you mean you don't want me to marry you? Yeah? She said, I want you to come to New York, and I want you to walk me down the aisle. Aww. She said, I never had a father, and you've been the father in my life. Aww. So will you walk me down the aisle? Uh, I get choked up telling her, yeah, and I did. Walked her down the aisle, turned around. I was in my vestments and married her. And, and now she's a board member at Mercy Home. She's giving back. What was given to her is a gift. She contributes. She gives back to the home. So that's one of my, yeah, yeah. It's but just, there's a thousand. amazing to me, and I could go on forever and ever, but I know that, you know, we've got a time limit on the show. I just, I can't get over you as a person. Mm -hmm. Again, I know that this is focused. We want to talk about Mercy Home and the children and the things that, you know, the, the organization is doing. But you as a person, knowing you as a friend, Knowing your schedule on a week-to-week -week basis, it's incredible how many people you serve. I mean, we're talking outside of Mercy Home now. So you're, you're visiting with elderly patrons. You're, you're there, you know, getting tomatoes from someone. <laughs> you're, at, you know, you're, you're sitting there, you're ordaining, you're, you're, you're sitting with people and walking alongside them. And you're not someone that shoves the Bible down people's throat. Yeah. You're, you're, the gospel in action. You're, you're 
what everyone, you know, when you say what would Jesus do or like how to behave like Jesus versus just talking the talk, it's, it's you. You are always there for anybody. There's no level of betrayal from people that are going through tough situations that you have not forgiven them. And I've seen this personally time and again with people that you've worked with where they've let you down and you just never stop. Talk about resilience. You never stop loving them. You never stop helping them. You never stop being God. Like you, you are living God. And it's, it's, I'm it's so honored to know you as a friend. I say that all the time, but I just, I love you and I'm so grateful to have you here and to be able to spread the word of what you do to other people because I don't think a lot of people know you as much as they know Mercy Home. So That's very kind stuff. The truth of the matter, like all of us, we all have clay feet and believe me, I, I know that about myself. But what better way to spend your life than sort of giving it away to enhance the world? I mean, that's, that's given as gift, you give as gift. I'll leave you with an image, um, and it's by a, an old bishop uh, who lived in South America, and he lived with the poorest of the poor. I have a great heart for the poor, mm-hmm. and I, I wish I could do more for the poor. His name was Don Helder Camera, and he wrote this little verse, Lord, permit the symbol of my life to be a candle which burns itself, spends itself, consumes itself until there is no more wax to burn. So we spend our lives bringing light to others. That's beautiful. Until we're with God, you know? Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a life well lived, and I think that's what so many people strive for, and we get stuck in the cycle of social media and, you know, consumerism, and we end up feeling unfulfilled, and I think from what you've said today and what you do for a living, it's just, it's a guide for people that would like to live, you know, like that candle and just, you know, give, give back, stop the cycle, stop and look at your life. Are you doing what you feel you believe in? Are your, are your beliefs aligned with your actions? Are you giving back enough? Can you do more? Are you proud of who you are? Can you look in the mirror? Is your mirror shining the light on the darkness? I mean, it's just, it's everything you've said is just, Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being my friend. (laughs) Thank you for being mine. Boy, we depend on that. And and really just all my coworkers and all those who support Mercy Home. You know, again, I get this attention and they deserve the attention. They really do. And I'm not trying to be humble, you know. Talk to them real quick before we end the show. So so to my coworkers who'll be watching the podcast and certainly our donors, you really are the angels of God's mercy that make the miracles happen at Mercy Home for Boys and Girls. I am so terribly grateful, particularly as we move into this Thanksgiving season of gratitude and into the Christmas season of hope and of joy. And if you want to learn more about Mercy Home, just go online, mercyhome.org, and you'll see our website and you can explore forever. (laughs) But a privilege being with you and obviously with you, Steph. Thank you.